0: Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.
1: People with mast cell disorders, I mean, they can have a reaction to insect bites, of course, things like that, hot and cold, stress, odors, specific foods, alcohol, exercise, medications. It's just, and then it can affect all kinds of systems. It's not just anxiety. I mean, it could your nose, your throat, your skeletal muscles, GI tract, your cardiovascular. I mean, it's just so broad. And... It's a relatively new phenomenon. So it reminds me of what I used to say uh, in my lectures is, you know, your depression is not your grandmother's depression because it used to be, all right, you had a depression maybe because you lost a child, uh, childbirth, or maybe there's a war around and you had displacement or something like that. Or maybe there was infection that was going around. You had a chronic infection or something like that. But now the, the causes are so varied. And so depression is much more complex now. And now it's like the man, add the mast cell to the bucket. It's really a new deal.
0: Hello, hello. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I talk with Dr. Robert Hedea, one of my favorite experts on the cutting edge of psychiatry, brain health, brain inflammation, head trauma, and neurodegenerative conditions, which we discuss at length. He has some fascinating patient case examples that he presents, and my jaw was left hanging open. I can't wait for you to hear. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine Podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Hideo, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I am so excited to have you on today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. Really looking forward to this.
0: Well, especially as we're talking about neuropsychiatric symptoms, it is a hot topic across the world, not just the United States. And you are absolutely a foremost expert on it as it relates to a different approach, a different way of thinking, more of a functional medicine approach as opposed to here, take this pill and I'll see you in a month. So I can't wait to dive into the way you do it, thoughts, the research you're seeing, and so forth. Right. Well, where would you like me to start? <laughs> for About you. a lot of, I know you. I've seen you lecture at IFM, the Institute for Functional Medicine. I've seen you lecture at some other places. But for those who don't know who you are, give us a little background of what you do, what you stand for, how you're different, so everyone understands.
1: Okay. Well, basically, I started out as a psychiatrist at Georgetown, National Institute of Mental Health, and quickly learned that physical things in the body can affect the brain. Uh, first case was a woman with B12 that was non-responsive, B12 deficiency. I didn't know she had a deficiency for a year. She had a panic disorder, non-responsive to all the traditional things, even the cutting edge things at that time, 1983. And after a year, I figured out, oh, this could be B12, gave her an injection and boom, panic gone. And I was like, wow, what else am I missing? Because mental health It's a revolving door, you know, try this, do this, come back. You don't like this psychiatrist, go to this psychiatrist, go to that therapist. So anyway, that really turned me down a road to look, what else am I missing? And the result of that, and the bottom line was until the last four or five years where I've gone to another level, but it was functional medicine. I basically was in functional medicine before I knew there was functional medicine. Because you follow the truth, what the facts are, and that's where you're going to end up. Always, yeah. That's what I did. And then you've written a few books three books along the way to, you know, with get the information out, lecturing, et cetera, teaching at Georgetown. And then about four or five years ago, started to get into high lane, which I'll I'll describe high lane treatments working actually inside the brain. And I'll explain that to you and I'll I'll actually show you some imagery that you I can share with the audience.
0: That'd be fantastic. Yeah.
1: And now when people ask me what I do, I don't say I'm a psychiatrist and I say I'm a neuropsychiatrist, really, because I'm working both with psychiatric And with dementia type neurodegenerative disorders. And we now know the very, very important point for your listeners, that early psychiatric problems like depression, panic, PTSD, these things actually, in some percentage, which looks like it's 30 or 40%, are early signs of a neurodegenerative process. So what looks today like depression when you're 30 could be the early phases of a process, a physiological process, like inflammation, for example, that will move you down the road over time to a neurodegenerative disorder, such as a, some type of dementia. So we now look at these things, depression, panic, PTSD, as being different than just, oh, this is psychiatric. This It's, it's not.
0: Well, I've actually heard you say before in a different lecture, you said the head is connected to the body by this thing called the neck. Right. So in relation to how you address the body as a whole, which is amazing, can you explain why we have this big disconnect between body health and brain or mental health when, hello, the brain is part of the body? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Right. Uh, That's a whole discussion, you know, why (laughs) there's so many reasons for it. I mean, People from splitting, let's just take a simple thing, that they split neurology from psychiatry. Like, what are you thinking? You're not thinking. That's the answer. (laughs) But there's the mind-body connection, the mind-body split, the duality in psychology. And then there's the history of understanding mental illness. There's just like so much confusion. But so that there's a lot of reasons for the split. And now it's enshrined in our educational systems, et cetera, you know.
0: Which is really unfortunate. And in fact, along the same lines is I've had a couple of biologic or holistic dentists on and they have the same complaint from a different angle where they say, why has the mouth been removed from the rest of the body when so much systemic illness actually starts in the mouth? And Yeah,
1: the mouth, the brain, and the feet.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's one whole system. Come on now. (laughs) Which is people listen to this. I think they're going to have light bulb moment of, yeah. I forgot. We get so entrained in, no, it's all separate and we need to address it separately. So I'm glad to have you on so I can quite literally, pun intended, pick your brain about this. Okay. (laughs) Oh, I'm ready. All right. So depression, anxiety, you mentioned inflammation earlier. Depression and anxiety, huge, seems to be growing in our society, of course. Now, newly, you'll see a lot on social media and some of the research around inflammation and inflammation and brain inflammation really being the ultimate cause of some of the neuropsychiatric processes that are happening. Talk us through that. And I've heard you talk about this before as well, but from your angle, what does that mean? Talk us through inflammation. Well,
1: First, for, I'll talk to you about inflammation, but let me just say there's no, this is the thing. Is yeah. it common? Yes. Right. It's common, but there's many layers. It's always, I always say, use it's a layer cake, a seven layer cake or whatever. There's always multiple layers, right? So you could have TBI, so the antecedents, there's the genetics, traumatic brain injury, the adverse childhood experiences. And then there's the mediators of your illness. One would be cytokines and inflammation. And then there's the things that maintain your illness, that perpetuate your illness, like stress in your life or poor diet or things like that. So a bad environment, mold, et cetera. So inflammation. Inflammation is ubiquitous, right? It's such a big thing. I mean, I don't know if I see anybody who doesn't have inflammation. I often think sometimes you'll see people who are they live to a long age, and they're thin and vibrant. They've got a great brain, and and it's really their immune system. A lot of it's their immune system. Some of it, not all of it. Some of them, you know, they may live in a blue zone. They may live in a great community, et cetera. There's good evidence that being connected to a religious community actually enhances and prolongs your life by seven years. So there are a lot of things, but inflammation is rampant, and uh, there are lots of sources from stress to mold to chronic infections, to poor diet, to leaky gut, right? So low zinc, poor nutrition, poor poor nutrients, toxins, right? That damage the mitochondria, mitochondrial dysfunction actually will increase oxidative stress a great deal because, you know, you have the free radicals being released there around the mitochondria and you're trying to produce energy. That's really what it's about, is having energy, right? In your organs, et cetera. So how do we approach it? The first thing is you want to be an MD. You want to be a medical detective. Yeah. You want to. This is critical. And I was trained in the uh, name it, blame it, tame it model. Okay. Pick your DSM category. And then that's the cause of your problem. Oh, you have pneumonia. I'm not going to think about whether it's fungal pneumonia, pneumococcal pneumonia, tuberculosis, mycoplasma. I don't know. I'm going to just treat you pneumonia. That's not going to work too well. It doesn't work very well with psychiatry or dementia or neurodegenerative disorders, right? Because these are syndromes, meaning they have multiple causes that lead kind of like through a funnel. You put in a little family history risk with your genes, you put in a little bad environment, you put in traumatic brain injury, put in these different things, bad environment, and outcomes, depression, let's say, or panic or anxiety or something like that. So, You have to be an MD and you have to really not give up to find the root cause. That's what this is about, root cause medicine, right? The thing is, it's not root cause like we think of, well, let's take, you have a strep throat. What's the root cause? It's the bacteria. I'll give you the one medicine, penicillin, boom, you're good, you're done. It's not like that in chronic illness, right? That's a great model. The antibiotic model, the wonderful model, it was blew everyone away. And we kind of took that on and we said, oh, this is going to work for everything. Well, it does not work for chronic illness because in chronic illness, multiple systems are involved. And so it's systems biology. So when you're dealing with inflammation, you're looking around for the sources of inflammation, identify the sources, you have to learn how to do that, and then treat the sources. When you treat the sources, most of the time, that's going to get better. Now, the sources are really varied, right? You could have a mast cell activation disorder. You can have methylation problems so you're not able to deactivate histamine. You have genetic vulnerability, the histamine and methyltransferase. You can't, you know, your genes are not able to detox, let's say, histamine very effectively, or like I said, it could be mold or gut infections, parasites, Lyme, chronic Lyme, Bartonella, the list goes
0: on. Do you have a, like for people listening, obviously the list is very long, but do you have... Like a top three. When you're working with somebody, you're like, you know what? These are the most common. They're not everything. But the most common or top five that you think we're going to turn these rocks over.
1: So what I would say is uh, now is that I would have said food is number one. I would say chronic infections, number two, and mold, number three. And it's not necessarily in that order. I'm sorry. I say because usually it doesn't come as one at a time. It comes in packages. But the thing that's really, really wild me, is now I'm seeing all of these people with mast cell activation disorders. These are people who, I you know, I've been doing functional medicine since the mid-90s, right? And so that's a long time. I treat all the systems quickly and in sequence because I like to get people better quick. It's hard work. It's harder the way I do it, but it's quicker. And I get, I just get really good outcomes for people who are going to do what they have to do, get great outcomes. But now I'm running into a lot of people who can't even tolerate supplements. This was never the case. And this has to do with the mast cell activation disorder that seems so widespread now. And I just wonder what, how much of this is due to our environment becoming more toxic, even in the last 10 years. And I don't know what those toxicity factors are. I don't know if it's 5G. I don't know. I don't know what it is, uh, you know, some combination, but it's quite striking. So before. A lot of times, before we get to doing the functional medicine, we have to deal with the histamine thing right up front. And that's a, you know, it's a, quite a change, real, in uh, my practice anyway.
0: And I would agree with you. I think our buckets are either our buckets are smaller or <laughs> our buckets are getting fuller that much faster, or we're unable as humans to empty out or clear our buckets as fast as we used to because they just keep getting full again. In fact, for those who don't know, mast cell activation syndrome, your mast cells, which are a cell in your immune system, when they come across something and they release, they blow up like a balloon, they release one to 200 different kinds of components, but histamine is a big player. And a lot of you know histamine for allergies, like it's pollen, dust, mold, dog hair. It's histamine that's causing the sneezy, snotty, drippy type of symptoms, but you can actually get quite systemic symptoms. And in fact, it's allergy season here where I live. We had a de- I live in the Pacific Northwest and we have a delayed summer And the last couple of nights, we're outside, we're outside at night. It's finally summer. And I'm like, I'm can't. i allergic. I feel allergic. And I also cannot sleep. I feel very wired. Well, histamine, for a lot of people, can rev them up. And if it keeps going, it can make anxiety worse in some people. But for me, I'm like, why can't I sleep? I'm like, oh, right. (laughs) My histamine is like, stay awake, stay awake. Let's do this.
1: (laughs) People with mast cell disorders, I mean, they can have a reaction to insect bites, of course. Like that hot and cold stress, odors, specific foods, alcohol, exercise, medications, it's just, and then it can affect all kinds of systems. It's not just anxiety. I mean, you get your nose, your throat, your skeletal muscles, GI tract, your cardiovascular, it's just so broad, and it's a relatively new phenomenon. So it reminds me of what I used to say uh, in my lectures is, you know, your depression is not your grandmother's depression, because (laughs) it used to be... All right, you a depression maybe because you lost a child, uh, childbirth, or maybe there's a war around and you had displacement or something like that. Or maybe there was infection that was going around. You had a chronic infection or something like that. But now the the causes are so varied. And so depression is much more complex now. And now it's like the man, add the mast cell to the bucket. It's really a new deal.
0: And I don't think people realize when they're listening to this, it can be very eye opening to know even just foods, which is the first thing you mentioned, things like gluten and dairy. And I know I get made fun of a lot. Like, why do you keep saying gluten-free? Like, oh, Carrie, not everybody has to be gluten-free. I'm like, I know until you try it, <laughs> until you try it. And then you, and suddenly you get so much better. I've had multiple friends and I, multiple patients, multiple colleagues who roll their eyes and go, okay, fine. I'll give it a shot. And then they'll come back at me and go, oh, dang, you were right. All these things got better, including depression or anxiety or panic or whatever it was. The the food can be a big trigger, just as you're saying.
1: And then, you know, you have the inflammation in your gut, so you're not absorbing your nutrients. You don't absorb your nutrients. Well, how are you going to make your neurotransmitters, right? And then there are at least four, maybe five pathways that I know of that connect the gut to the brain and the brain cells, the immune cells in the brain and the neurotransmitter production in the brain. We can talk about the details of that if you want. But the gut is so tightly linked to the brain.
0: Yeah, we call it the gut-brain access for a reason. And now, thankfully, research is really focused in on that 10 years ago it used and used to be. And now it's, we can't keep up with the literature. I can't keep up with PubMed of all the articles coming out. But speaking of neurotransmitters, as you know, and I have to ask, there's the paper that came out, the serotonin theory of depression is not what we originally thought. So do you, and much to your seven layer cake analogy, Serotonin can be for some people, for sure, but it's not the end-all be-all right. for depression.
1: Yeah, so again, this is like no surprise to me when <laughs> uh, silly, uh, but it's not silly if you are in that pharmaceutical model. So there's a, a paper Eric Turner wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine 2008, and it was Selective Publication Bias of Antidepressant Trials. And so the National Institute of Mental Health approved, I think it was 74 or 75 clinical trials of antidepressant medications, and only 34 or 35 were published in the literature. And of course, these were the ones with positive results. So the pharmaceutical industry kept that out of the literature so that it would look like everything these meds work, right? And when you do a meta-analysis with all of them together, it turns out they're not much better than placebo. Now, I don't think that means you throw out the baby with the bathwater because I can tell you, I was trained as a psychopharmacologist. I don't use meds nearly as much as I used to, but I do use them and I find them to be useful tools and they can be life saving. They could also do a lot of damage, but they're so overused now. So these meds have antihistamine effects. They change the microbiome, okay? They increase neuroplasticity, they increase BDNF. They affect the um, beta adrenergic receptors. There's so many receptors: fourteen serotonin receptors, maybe more. So, and then when you're affecting serotonin, you're affecting dopamine. Right? So, like to say, oh, it's not a serotonin. Well, obviously, it's <laughs> such a silly thing, such a silly thing. So, all right, and nothing new there for us for the people in functional medicine. That's I don't think that's a new story.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. I was looking on your website where you talk about better health, less medicine, being a certified in psychopharmacology. And so I completely appreciate that you say I use meds if I need to, and they can be life-changing in some instances, but just, you may have other issues, food, mold, zinc, B12, digestion, trauma, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, cetera, that really might get you. That's the root cause. It's more of a system-wide
1: I'll tell you what, I'm not going to say you may have other issues. You do have other
0: issues. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. Yes. I stand corrected. Yes. Yes. Actually, speaking of, you mentioned earlier TBI, which is traumatic brain injury. Talk to me about brain injuries and uh, psychological processes, because in my experience, you ask people if they've had a major car accident or sports or military, they can recall their trauma, their head trauma. But for a lot of folks... Like I grew up riding horses. Have I been thrown into trees and fences and hit my head? Of course. Would I have classified myself of having head injury? No, because I was a kid and that was back then, and I'm an adult now. But in some of your examples in lectures I've heard you say and on your site, it's that's the thing that was the triggering event for some of these processes.
1: Yeah. So for sure, like if let's say you fell off a horse, you hit your head, you might have such great cognitive reserve that. You don't really and depends on how old you are when it happens on where your brain is in terms of its rewiring because your brain rewires in adolescence, early 20s and whatever. So there are a lot of factors. But so let's just say you had a TBI, but you might have such great cognitive reserve that you don't really notice it or maybe it wasn't so bad, but it's possible. I mean, I think TBIs are rampant. And knowing what I know, I'm like, I don't, I can't believe people are still putting their adolescence into football on football. I can't believe it. It's unbelievable what I know. Most people don't know that, but it's, I don't know, it's kind of tragic to me. So TBI in the mental health sphere is rampant. And I now always take a careful history. And you always ask someone, no, I didn't. Well, did you have any car accidents? Oh, well, yeah. Fender bender. Well, how fast? Uh, 10 miles an hour. Well, did your head go back? Yeah, it did. So you could have a shear injury or the seatbelts went off or what? you fell off your bicycle, you fell out of a tree, what, you jumped off a balcony. I don't know. All kinds of things. It's very common. And if you take the history, you sometimes see that symptoms began like a year later or two years later. So TBI, we see a lot. One of the things we do for TBI is hyperbaric oxygen. And you don't need high pressures. The soft units are good. And the greatest impact, there was a study in 2013 by this Busi Gross, and they showed the greatest impact of a, of, T, of hyperbaric oxygen was in the frontal lobes, which is your executive function, your organization, your planning, etc. The orbital frontal cortex, which is Brodman area 11, when that's not functioning, you're impulsive. You can't, it kind of sits on your emotional brain, not physically, but in a functional way and helps you inhibit you feel like doing you get upset you're angry you're scared and you want to take action the frontal uh, area this broadman area 11 kind of inhibits the limbic brain the emotional brain so it gives you emotional control and then there's the anterior front temporal lobes which are very involved in mood regulation and emotional states And then uh, there's the angular gyrus, which is also very affected by hyperbaric oxygen, which is involved in self-awareness, theory of mind, awareness of what other people might be thinking, et cetera. So, I mean, there's a lot you can do for TBI, even years later, even years later.
0: And I think a lot of people listening, as you go through the different brain sections and what they control and your personality or your emotions are going to tick off those boxes. Like, oh, I don't have that. I don't do that. Like control, impulsive, executive thinking, organized. I had a patient, she was a very high executive at a company and all of a sudden it all fell apart. And we thought it was stress. We thought it was transition into perimenopause. Like I was like, oh my goodness, you went from very organized, very highly skilled, very, all the bubbles are balls in the air. And I kept asking her all the questions, couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. Finally, Like a year and a half later, she said, oh my gosh, I was talking to my girlfriend about our visits and she said, well, remember when we went hiking and you slipped and fell on the icy patch and went down and hit your head? And she said, no, I landed on my elbow and wrist and that's what hurt. And her friend said, no, you hit your head. What you, what hurt the most, what you thought you broke was your elbow and your wrist. So that's what got all the attention, but you hit your head in the process. And it was from that moment fast that that like everything fell apart. But to her, she's like, oh no, that I didn't hit my head. I just nearly broke my wrist. And I think a lot of people, when they think back, go, Oh crap, there was that time I fell or hit or banged and just brushed it off. Or in her situation, something else hurt worse. So that I got all the attention. And
1: Yeah. I just was talking to someone today. His three and a half year old fell off the bed, jumping on the bed, fell off the bed, broke her arm poor little girl and got the, you know she'll almost um, heal but when you she fell whatever three feet four feet five feet and had to have some type of head injury even if she even if her head landed on a pillow okay because the, the brain is accelerating and then it stops <laughs> so where quickly it's going to go kind of be compressed against the skull now it depends on a lot of factors whether it leads but This could be someone who, you know, in a year, God forbid or something, starts to have behavioral problems or something. But we don't think that way.
0: Yeah. Well, now the next logical question, of course, is what do we do? Because you know, everybody listening is going, this is me. This is me. I've just checked all the boxes. This sounds exactly like me. So I really want to get into (laughs) what do you do and hyaline therapy?
1: Okay. So hyaline therapy is uh, hyperbac oxygen, QEEG guided laser. And neural exercise, which can be brain master or some brain thing that you do on our community. But we, when I do it, I'm thinking most of the time of neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. So neurofeedback kind of is like exercise for specific circuits in the brain. So what I found was, this is kind of what woke me up a few years ago. And if you want, I will share my screen.
0: Yeah, we'll just have to talk through it for the. I
1: will talk through it. Can you share your screen? I'm going to share my screen here and I'm going to show you. I'm giving a talk tomorrow on this. So I have these slides here for you. So this is a woman here. What what people are seeing on the screen is a QEG, a quantitative EEG. And we're looking, we can do this in the office or in a person's home, anywhere in the country now, thanks to COVID. We learned how to do this. You see on here sl- different slices of the brain. So here on the upper right hand quadrant of this black here, you're looking at the brain from the side This is the eye can you see my cursor
0: yes yep yep
1: and then uh the here where you're we're looking down on the brain so the ears are here on the right and left the eyes are here and the feet are on the other side of your computer screen top of the head closest to you back of the head here and this is looking these are the ears kind of cutting through the ears so and then this here is the connective information flow let's say from different areas of the brain which we can get into detail on not today but when we analyze it. The main thing here is this is a woman who came to me with early mild cognitive impairment, a family history of dementia, strong genetic vulnerability, APOE4, homozygous, both genes for that, and she was having prosopagnosia, which is a difficulty recognizing faces for the last seven years, and she also was having temporal lobe seizures. And so mild, but uh, enough that they're going. So this is what we had after functional medicine. And when I saw this, I was like, I was like, oh my God, functional medicine is helping her brain, but it ain't curing her brain. Now what do I do? And so I'll fast forward here because what we did is we did hyperbaric oxygen and 30 laser treatments. And this is how her brain looked afterwards.
0: Wow. And for those who are just listening, there is a massively distinct difference.
1: Yeah, this is normal. This is completely normal. And go back to this first one here. You see the hippocampus here, which is most affected in Alzheimer's disease, right? One of the areas that have most affected. And it was 2.7 standard deviations from the normal. That's the red cross here. It's deep in the brain, kind of inside your ear in the middle of the brain. And you can see it right here. And we go back here, and this is the hippocampus. And it's completely normal, right? And then and the information is flow as normal. So this is after 30 laser sessions, basically, and some hyperbaric, but this is really due to the laser. And the laser is basically we take the quantitative EEG, we put the cap on someone's head, we there are like 19 electrodes, and we measure the electricity coming from all the different areas of the brain. And we can see which networks are normal, which networks are abnormal, which surface areas are abnormal, which nuclei deep inside the brain are normal, which ones are abnormal. And this all correlates with functional MRI, uh, diffusion tensor imaging. It's superior, really superior to SPEC scan.
0: Which is my next question because a lot of people have likely heard of SPEC scan given other clinics.
1: Yeah, well, with all due respect for Dr. Amen, who's done great work, Really great work. when he said, "Hey, folks, we got to look inside the brain." He was right. And so he developed the Amon clinics and they're looking inside the brain. But the problem is they don't get this kind of detail. It's now old technology. So this is amazing because we can target with the laser, we can target specific areas. and with the and the laser doesn't burn or anything like, they're controlling the energy, et cetera and with the neurofeedback we can say oh this network is not working well this network isn't working so basically with the hyperbaric oxygen we are increasing stem cells increasing oxygen increasing nutrients healing and then with the laser we're providing energy because that's what the probably the primary mechanism of the laser is it increases atp the energy molecule production and then with the neurofeedback, we're kind of saying, well, where should the brain use its energy? And we know which networks are not working, which networks are working, et cetera. So this woman had a normalization of her hippocampus and her facial recognition. This is what blew me away. I wasn't really trying to treat her facial recognition problem. Like, that's never been reversed. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever done that. I wasn't thinking about it. She came into my office after the treatment and she said to me, oh my God. I remember the face of the person I worked with this morning and his wife. And she had a mole on her face without all this detail. I'm like, whoa, so what What was that? That meant that there were cells that were alive, but they were liminal. They, were, they didn't have the energy to do their job, but they were alive. So it's like artificial, like uh, resuscitation. And so I was so blown away that we published the paper actually in March. Joel Lubar helped me with the imaging. And so we published this paper. It was This is the first ever reported case of reversal of facial blindness. And now we've reversed, partially reversed, three cases of aphasia. Aphasia is where you can't speak.
0: There's the actor, right? Who has that now?
1: Right. We tried to reach out to them to tell them about it, but we couldn't get anywhere. But so, and there are 20, we now have roughly, I was just counting them up, about 27 cases of different things treatment resistant depression we've got seven cases and actually I, with functional medicine and this i mean we almost have if you can do what i ask you to do it's like 100% response rate for treatment resistant depression so that's what we're doing
0: and you just so everyone's clear you don't just jump into this therapy you have an entire functional medicine sort of protocol they the baseline right they have to have a certain baseline first before they
1: So you know what? It's a great question because that was my model. I was like, I got to do the functional medicine first fix the terrain. And then along came this woman last year, about a year ago in August of the year, year 72-year-old African-American woman. And I said to her husband, "Like, there's no point. She's not going to do the functional medicine. She doesn't want to change her diet. She can't even express herself. She can't talk. I said, it doesn't make sense. He says to me, look, I said to him, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. He says, look, I grew up on a farm. If you lead a horse to water, he doesn't want to drink. You put the hose down his mouth. (laughs) That's one way to look at it. I said, okay, if you could do that, fine. I'm in. Let's do it. Well, he couldn't put the hose down. (laughs) mouth, So we were going nowhere, but she couldn't speak. And I said, you know, I'm doing nothing in functional medicine. She's really not compliant. Let me just try the laser. She can't speak. I did the QEG. Okay, here's where we need to target the laser. I'm making the laser plan. It's sitting at my desk. and pops out of my mouth, God, I need a miracle. Well, do you know, I go into the laser room, and I'm doing the laser, and she starts talking. And her husband and I both have tears in our eyes. I am in shock. I am in shock. And uh, her speech got good enough that I was able to have a 45-minute therapy session with her. So it wasn't perfect. But everybody, her friends, everybody, everyone noticed it. And it was, so I didn't do the functional medicine, which she would have done even better with the functional medicine. I'm still trying to do the functional medicine. I don't give up too easily. I'm on the fence now. I think logically it makes sense to do the functional medicine first, but I'm finding in another aphasia case, a woman who came to me from Illinois, she drove to me from Illinois with aphasia, with her daughter. And she's here from Illinois. Let me give her a shot. Give her a couple of laser treatments. And you wouldn't believe the letter that I got back about how she was fluent and speaking for two days. And that's without the functional medicine. So we still have to go back and treat the root causes because you know what? There's stuff that's making her neurons degenerate. If we don't treat that, it will overcome the laser. It will.
0: People listening to this, first of all, mind's blown. I don't even know what to say. I need the
1: laser. That's <laughs> your reaction. That's my reaction. I come home at night and I'm telling my wife, I say, I don't know what to say. My mind is blown. This is, you don't see this. So yeah, I mean,
0: okay. I'm writing a
1: book about it. Good. I want to call it mind blown because
0: you should, <laughs> I'll help you promote it. Thank you. Now for those listening, the laser is probably the most confusing part. People, some people know hyperbaric oxygen. They've done it, they've seen it, or they haven't, or they've heard about it with divers, let's say. The neural exercises, neurofeedback may be new to some people, but it's in my community, a lot of people know it, done it. We I live in Portland, Oregon. We have a number of neurofeedback practitioners. Can you just, if somebody's listening and is like, oh, I know there's a clinic down the street that does hyperbaric oxygen. Can I start there? Do they have to come see you? Is there, are there clinicians across the country that you're training? How does somebody resonate with this and want to jump in.
1: Okay. So the answer is, this is a method I developed myself. And I'm hoping that when the book comes out, which is probably a couple of years from now, that I will be able to train clinicians. So that's the goal because people need this. I want to do a study. If anyone has any leads, I want to do a study on aphasia. I think it's really worthy. People suffer so much with that. I have limited bandwidth, but there's so much that needs to be done. This is an incredible tool. So right now, I would say that I'm the one who's doing it. I do need to train people. It's a recently developed uh, thing.
0: Yeah, cutting edge, cutting edge. But there's no harm if somebody's listening and says I can get hyperbaric oxygen and I can do, for example, neurofeedback. Is something I haven't tried those yet. Didn't even know about them. I can try those. It's worth-
1: Yeah, I mean, sure. Obviously, whoever does a hyperbaric oxygen should evaluate you for risk, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, if it's appropriate for your condition, the, the HBOT person should know, the hyperbaric person should know whether this is appropriate for your condition and the neurofeedback person should know whether you're a safe candidate for either one of them you know, or appropriate candidate for either one of them.
0: And then can you explain again, just I want to make sure I really hit this home, What is the laser and what does it do? Because this is definitely going to Star Wars blow people's minds.
1: Okay, so laser is light that is coherent light, meaning all the waves, the light waves are all in sync with each other. Like waves in the the ocean, they're all kind of in sync with each other. And you can have the light at a specific frequency. The waves could be 810 cycles per second, 810 hertz or 1064 hertz, that kind of thing, right? So the laser basically shines a light. We put it, depending where we want, through the, on the surface, on the skull. And 97% of it doesn't go into the brain. It's absorbed by tissues. And a small percentage, about 2.6 to 2.8% gets through. And what it does is the light, the photons of light, let's say the waves or particle or packets of light, they go to the mitochondria. The mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell, right? And they like batteries. Now, if you picture a battery that has like four proteins on its surface, complex one through four, there's a whole process of moving the electricity, the electrons along this battery. And the fourth complex is a little a hole, a pore, and the ATP, the energy molecule, without which none of us would be alive, that molecule comes through the pore, and you get your ATP, and you get your energy to do everything your body needs to do, right? Sitting in that, on that pore is a nitric oxide molecule, tiny molecule, NO. The photon from the laser knocks the nitric oxide off. ATP comes out. You've got energy. The nitric oxide goes and dilates the local blood vessels. You get more blood flow. It also acts as a neurotransmitter, probably. Also, there are several other mechanisms by which it works. And so that's kind of what happened. So this woman with the prosomagnosia who suddenly could remember faces, this woman actually suddenly got this burst of brain energy in these neurons, specific nerve tracks that needed it. And so, wow, okay, we're ready to operate. We got ATP now.
0: That's amazing. Is there anyone you have found shouldn't do this? Is there, are there any contraindications?
1: Yeah, the contraindication. So, we always do it, an MRI beforehand. We want to make sure that there are no vascular problems in the brain. And yesterday, somebody wanted to do it who had a shunt in the brain. No, we're not going to do it with a shunt in the brain. So, vascular problems would be a problem if you want to make sure it's not a tumor in the brain or something like that. And then also, I think a contraindication probably is I wouldn't do it on someone who has psychotic disorder or history of psychotic disorder like meaning mania or active psychosis. now I did do it on one guy who has anybody would call him paranoid schizophrenia and the, what I did was he had on his QEG we could see that there was one nerve tract going from the frontal area to the occipital area in the back of the brain and another one a vertical occipital fasciculus it's called inferior frontal occipital fasciculus those two nerve tracks, and he gave a history of having seeing people's faces as if they were always looking at him in a demeaning way. His whole life, everyone was looking at him, say with a scowl. Oh, wow! And so he, this is the way he lives in the world. So we actually treated those two places, and over four treatments, he reported that his facial distortions melted away, and he was seeing people normally. And interestingly. He says to me, and you know, I also notice I'm reading faster. I was oh, that's interesting. Then I looked up the tracks, and it turns out those tracks are in charge of reading speed. So, I'm like, wow, I mean, that's, I didn't know that. I didn't tell him that. This is not a placebo. That lasted nine months. This guy, as many schizophrenics, will not maintain a uh, functional medicine protocol. He's gluten sensitive, dairy sensitive, and he's Mr. Twinkie. So, we know what to do, but can you make the patient do it? Can the patient adhere to what they need to do? It's another story.
0: It's such an interesting case right there because if somebody who doesn't have that. When you're looking at me, when you and I are talking, you know, I don't feel like you're looking at me with a scowl, hopefully not. So it would never dawn on me because it's their normal, right? If that's how they grew up yeah. and or that's what like if, if no one's taught you, hey, the world isn't looking at you with a scowl, that's not normal. Right. I mean, maybe in, maybe some people, don't get me wrong, <laughs> or some cities, right. but if you think that you're normal and you don't know any better, oh my goodness, the implications that has just in that alone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can, I'll share my screen quickly. I'll show you his QEG here, right here. This is one tract here. Oh yeah. That was abnormal. And this is the vertical occipital fasciculus here, right here. And this is afterwards was normalized. All normal. And uh, he really had a, Amazing uh, turnaround, just amazing turnaround, really. And then we did another guy with vascular dementia. I mean, just the stories are mind-boggling. So
0: you uh, write the book, train the people.
1: <laughs> yep. Yep. Yep.
0: Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Okay, so we have covered so much. This is incredible. So as this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Give us the top two or three things you want to leave everybody with to take home by for the end of this podcast.
1: Two or three things. Okay. Remember that what seems to be a psychological problem is probably not. Okay. Do the physical problems cause psychological problems? Yeah, sure. You're feeling horrible. Do you develop bad psychological habits? Yes. Do you have to learn and develop your character over the course of your life to be a better person who's uh, more self-aware, more self-directed, and more able to cooperate? Yes. But you're what you think are psychological problems are actually physiological problems, environmental problems, cultural problems. You are a bacteria swimming in a soup and you are strongly influenced by everything around you. The so number one is whatever you're thinking is psychological, be careful about swallowing that falsehood. Sometimes it is. There are distortions in your thinking, etc. But I find that when people get their heads, their brains together, they can handle lots of things that they couldn't handle before. So that would be number one, okay? Number two, I would say, uh, this: we didn't talk about it, but number two, I would say you work really diligently on your spirituality. Really important because spirituality, I wrote a chapter on this for the, the, the textbook of functional medicine. Spirituality, it's a lifetime of work, but when you get to a point where you actually have a faith in the transcendent being, whatever you want to call it, and you trust the universe or trust the guider of the universe, whatever you want to call it, and you're connected to a spiritual community that is a healthy, constructive community, your health is going to be enhanced, like on the to the tune of seven years of better life and more happiness and less depression, et cetera. So that would be number two. And uh, I think the last one would be where don't swallow every new fad that comes along in psychiatry, because read the book by Robert Whitaker, Mad in America. In psychiatry, we have fads every 50 years, okay? We're at the end of the psychopharmacology fad. Now we're starting the RTMS magnetic therapy fad. This is the new fad, but read the literature, RTMS, the data is really poor and it's very expensive. But the hospital's are making a lot of money. And that's always the story. We read Robert Whitaker's Man in America. That's always the story. Okay, so that's what I would say.
0: I love it. I love it. Dr. Hedea. I have loved having you on the podcast today. Tell everyone where they can find you.
1: Well, my website is Whole Psychiatry, like Whole Foods, only Whole Psychiatry. I had the name first, <laughs> but we didn't grow like they grew. <laughs> So wholepsychiatry.com, there's a ton of information there. There are videos, there are articles, there's all kinds of stuff there. Uh, You can really learn a lot. There's a sample report of what, for example, of what we produce when we see someone uh, spend hours going over their labs and I produce like a 15 or 20 page report. There's all kinds of stuff and a lot of stuff there for you.
0: Pulse psychiatry.com We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you again so much for sharing your wisdom, being on the cutting edge as usual, for doing it as long as you've done it. I just really appreciate your time today.
1: It's a pleasure being here. You did a great job. I, I really love talking with you. So it's really great.
0: Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.